0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, November 23rd. In today's news, Joe Biden picks Tony Blinken to be his secretary of state. The president's legal team is thrown into tumult, as Chris Christie calls them, a national embarrassment. And Israel's prime minister visits Saudi Arabia for the first time. But first, the big idea. The coronavirus vaccine, developed by Oxford University and the British-Swedish pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca, is up to 90% effective when administered as a half dose and then a full dose a month later. And in the trials, no participant who received the vaccine developed a severe case or required hospitalization. AstraZeneca says in a news release this morning that the vaccine's average efficacy is 70% reflecting the disparate results from two different dosing regimens. When two full doses were given at least one month apart, for example, efficacy fell to 62%. Now the vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna showed efficacy of about 95%, according to data from late stage trials that those companies released last week. So while the results released by AstraZeneca indicate slightly lower efficacy, our London correspondent, Bill Booth, explains that it might actually be more significant for stopping the spread of the pandemic because this vaccine can be stored and transported at normal refrigerated conditions for up to six months. That could make it significantly easier to roll out than Pfizer's vaccine, which has to be stored at negative 70 degrees Celsius, or Moderna's, which is stable in refrigerated conditions for only 30 days and must be frozen at negative 20 degrees Celsius after that. This one is also significantly cheaper to manufacture the cost and distribution elements are critically important for addressing the pandemic in the developing world. Monsef Slowy, the chief scientific advisor to the White House's Operation Warp Speed vaccine effort, said Sunday on CNN that about 70% of the American population will need to get vaccinated for true herd immunity to occur here. He says that will probably happen around May, based on current planning. Slowey said that the federal government will be ready to start shipping vaccines within 24 hours after a candidate receives emergency authorization from the FDA. He noted that the CDC and its Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices must review data and recommend who should get immunized first. They haven't decided that yet. Pfizer filed for emergency authorization for its vaccine this past Friday, and the FDA announced that a committee of external advisors will meet December 10th to make recommendations to the agency on whether to authorize the Pfizer vaccine. Then, advisors will meet on December 17th to review the shot developed by Moderna. On Sunday, the FDA also granted emergency authorization to the experimental treatment given to Trump last month. The drug cocktail made by Regeneron Pharmaceuticals is designed to prevent infected people from developing more severe illness. It's the second drug of this type, a monoclonal antibody, to be cleared for treating COVID. With coronavirus hospitalizations topping 80,000 in the United States this morning and case counts on the cusp of 200,000 a day, officials and experts are giving their final pleas for caution in the days before Thanksgiving. The average number of new cases reported each day in the U.S. has jumped nearly 15% in the last week, yet many Americans are traveling anyway. More than one million people went through TSA checkpoints in airports nationwide on Friday, and more than 980,000 did it again on Saturday. Different people. The number of travelers screened Friday was the second highest single-day rush since March 16th. The latest CDC data shows that more than 50%, more than 50% of all COVID infections are transmitted from people who are not exhibiting any symptoms, and peak infectiousness comes five days after infection. That's why mask wearing is so important. And as cases rise across America, the nation's smallest health providers are facing some of the biggest problems. Finding personal protective equipment amid the surge in cases is proving particularly difficult. Community health centers and small doctor's offices, AIDS clinics, and homeless shelters are struggling with a scarcity of protective gear to buffer their workers from harm. Their budgets and buying power have been unable to compete with large medical institutions. Amy Goldstein reports that most U.S. major health systems over the last nine months have stitched together systems and improvisations to acquire the masks, gowns, gloves, and other equipment that they need. But the small guys and the social service settings continue to suffer from shortages that they expect are only going to get worse. A New Orleans mission for the homeless and addicted finally gave up searching for masks after an offer from a local sports team fizzled. So its staff members now rely on disinfecting the masks throughout the day. To conserve gowns, a hospital in Boston requires nurses to stand without them on the opposite side of plexiglass barriers for most patients who come in for coronavirus tests, instructing people how to swab their own noses from the other side of the glass. And a pediatrician near Fredericksburg, Virginia, was thrilled when her husband spotted N95 masks the other day at a Lowe's because her office manager was unable to get more than a list of where to look for supplies from the state. World leaders closed their virtual G20 summit over the weekend with calls for a more coordinated global response to the contagion. This year's G20 was a muted affair. German Chancellor Angela Merkel said Saturday that if we stand together worldwide, we can control and overcome the virus and its consequences. Trump made only a brief appearance, In remarks to the group on Saturday, he touted his administration's record in combating the virus, claiming he has, quote, marshaled every resource. He made no promises to expand the availability of U.S. vaccines to the rest of the world, despite being asked to do so. Then he left to go play golf. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, President-elect Joe Biden has selected Antony Blinken, one of his closest and longest-serving foreign policy advisors, to be Secretary of State, as he prepares to unveil a slate of new nominees this week that will emphasize a deep well of experience in the foreign policy and national security establishment. Three sources with direct knowledge tell Annie Linsky that Blinken will get the nod on Tuesday. Soon after taking office, Biden plans to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, stop the U.S. exit from the World Health Organization, and try to resuscitate the Iranian nuclear deal. Blinken has been described as having a mind meld with Biden on a range of issues that will be important in his early tenure. Two sources also tell us that Jake Sullivan, another longtime top Biden advisor, is expected to be named his national security advisor. And we have three sources that Biden plans to announce Linda Thomas-Greenfield as his nominee for ambassador to the United Nations, giving a former career foreign service officer an African-American woman one of the most high-profile diplomatic posts in government. Number two, Chris Christie, a Trump confidant who helped prepare the president for the debates, called the conduct of Trump's legal team a national embarrassment on the Sunday shows. Senator Pat Toomey, a Republican from Pennsylvania, said Trump has, quote, exhausted all plausible legal options as he urged him to concede. And Senator Kevin Kramer, a Republican from North Dakota, said it's time to begin the transition. The president's legal team was thrown into tumult yesterday when two of Trump's attorneys, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, released a statement through the Trump campaign, abruptly distancing them from a third attorney, Sidney Powell. Powell, in particular, has been a vocal advocate in lobbying some of the most convoluted, bizarre claims over the last several days. On Sunday, she alleged a conspiracy that involved communist money, the dead Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez, and a pro-democratic algorithm. At the top of their bizarre news conference this past Thursday, Giuliani announced that he and Powell were, quote, representing President Trump and were representing the Trump campaign together. In a statement on Sunday, Giuliani said, quote, Sidney Powell is practicing law on her own. She is not a member of the Trump legal team. Paul Cain and Felicia Sonmez report that two advisors to Trump say that the president has been very unhappy about the coverage Powell was receiving on Fox News, especially from Tucker Carlson and others. Several allies had reached out to tell the president that Powell had gone too far. The advisers also say that she fought with Giuliani and others in recent days. As one campaign official put it to my colleagues, quote, she was too crazy even for the president. But Trump continues his efforts to overturn the will of the American people. A Republican member of Michigan's canvassing board is expected to vote later today against certifying results, which could cause a delay. The Trump campaign is demanding that Georgia recount all 5 million of its votes a second time, and Trump is in court trying to invalidate thousands of legally cast ballots in Wisconsin. From a legal perspective, Trump's effort appears futile. From a PR perspective, Trump continues to successfully sow doubt in the minds of many of his supporters. Number three, Benjamin Netanyahu reportedly made a secret trip on Sunday to Saudi Arabia, a visit that would mark a dramatic shift in the historically hostile relationship between the Jewish state and the Arab regional power. If confirmed, the brief trip would represent the first visit by an Israeli official to Saudi Arabia ever and comes amid a flurry of diplomatic breakthroughs between Israel and its other Arab neighbors. It also is occurring as tensions with Iran, viewed as a common enemy of both Israel and the Saudis, are on the rise. According to the Israeli media, Netanyahu met with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who's on a several-day trip around the region. In August, Israel and the United Arab Emirates reached an agreement to establish formal relations and open up trade, security, and tourism ties. Bahrain and Sudan followed suit, marking a collapse of long-standing Arab unity that resisted any negotiations with Israel as long as the country continued to occupy the West Bank. Palestinian leaders have condemned these Arab deals as a betrayal. But in recent weeks, our Jerusalem bureau chief Steve Hendricks reports that speculation in Israel has risen that Riyadh and Jerusalem are close to a similar deal. With Trump's defeat in the election, anxiety is rising in both Saudi Arabia and Israel that Biden is going to reverse Trump's hardline policies against Iran as he looks for a way to revive that nuclear deal with Tehran. The Saudi foreign minister said Saturday, as part of the G20, that Riyadh was ready to cooperate with the incoming Biden administration. But speculation that the Trump administration is preparing for last-minute military action against Iran to undermine its nuclear capabilities has been rising. Some insiders see Netanyahu's clandestine visit to the kingdom as further evidence that a strike is still possible before January 20th. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, November 23rd. Thank you for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.